Well, today we will continue looking forward to the heavenly realm as we began to discuss last week, last week talking specifically about the resurrection that awaits us in the future and the resurrection bodies that we will have. Today you're going to get many details. If you're not a note taker, today you might want to be a note taker because there will be a lot that we're going to see, particularly in the middle section of today's message. But first, uh, this is coming, uh, becoming somewhat of a theme. I need to finish last week's sermon, okay? So um, let's look at verses 1 to 5 of 2 Corinthians 5 and uh, go from there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at the very first verse. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge." Well, as Christians, we know what's coming. Uh, in fact, you can just be a Bible reader. You don't necessarily even have to be a Christian to find out what's coming. God has shared with us in His Word what is coming in the future. And for the Christian, it is a glorious future. It's a wonderful future. It's a God-centered, beyond-anything-we-could-ever-imagine kind of future. And it's coming. But you're here right now, aren't you? But you're here today in this body, in this context that you're in, here you are. And so, as Paul says in verse 4 here of 2 Corinthians 5, we are burdened, aren't we? We've been left to live in this tension between what is and what will be. As Christians, we have God the Spirit working in us, renewing us day by day, that inner man being renewed. We're being conformed progressively to the image of our Savior, Jesus. But we are in a tension here because we are in bodies of death. We're in bodies of sin. We are in a weak flesh and bone body. And so we groan with a desire, Paul says, verse 4 again, we groan. And as I mentioned last week, and as we even saying today, all creation joins together, and we're joining with creation in groaning in this context. We are groaning. And we waste away on the outside while we're renewed inwardly. We long for that heavenly existence. To give you a big overview of what's happening next, just in case you don't have that clear in your mind, as I was saying, God has told us. Let me just give you a big overview, and then we'll pop in and look at some of the details of this later on. But when we die as Christians, we enter what is known as the intermediate state. Okay? Now, this, of course, can also be called heaven. You go to heaven when you die as a Christian. That's true. But you go not with your body. Your body stays here. Your spirit goes. And this is why Paul says in verse 3 that this could be described as naked. He actually didn't really want to go through this if he didn't have to. Paul's ideal scenario was to just live until the Lord comes back. I think for every Christian, that should be our ideal scenario. But as it is, Paul now is naked. He didn't want to be, but he is. He's without a body. That's what that means, verse 3. Paul is in heaven spiritually but he is not there physically. His ultimate desire, of course, was for resurrection, and that's what comes after. The intermediate state is called intermediate because it's not the final state. It's not the ultimate place where we will exist. After the intermediate state, there will be a resurrection, and our spirits will be rejoined to our bodies. That body that has wasted away throughout our lives and wasted away in the grave, it will be rejoined to our spirits. Following that, there will be a glorious kingdom of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. And after that, there will be a new earth. So you can see, if you wanted to slow down and talk about those things, there would be a lot of details, right? There would be a lot to see. But that's the big picture. Yet right now, 
you're here. You're not in any of those places yet. You're here. And we are longing, we are yearning while we are in this earthly tent because we feel the effects. We know that the tent is not stable. It's certainly not permanent. The tent is not going to last. And this is contrasted with the house that we have from God. You see that back in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, from God we have a house. Well, that's contrasted with currently we have a tent. And so you can picture this life as we are making our way toward our future heavenly house, a heavenly body, a new, renewed, physical body that will be permanent, that will not waste away. You can imagine yourself today, as you're groaning and longing for that day, as just a nomad. You're a sojourner. You have this tent that you take with you toward your final state, whatever God desires to do in your life whenever He decides to come back and make all things new. That's His business. You're just journeying. And we get a great picture of this in Hebrews chapter 11, considering the life of Abraham. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, it says, "...by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance." And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's like us. We don't know how this is all going to end, right? By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was told to go. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew he was told to go. And so he started going. God had him travel. And he told him that there was this land of promise, there was this inheritance that was to go through his line, specifically ended up being through Isaac and Jacob. And that land, of course, belongs to Jacob's descendants. But along the way, Abraham was told that he wasn't going to get to enjoy that land. You remember that part of the story? He was actually told before that to get up and to go and walk around and examine the whole land. In Genesis 13, God had Abraham go out and walk the width, the length, see the whole thing. And then afterwards, God says, and you're going to die and you know, <laughs> you're not going to get to enjoy all this. It'll be for your descendants. And so that's why it could be rightly said that Abraham was not looking for a physical place. He was looking for a city from God whose architect and builder was God. He knew that that land wasn't for him. He knew he wasn't going to live forever. And so for us too, the church, who have been saved by God for many purposes, we march through this life knowing that this isn't it. We go through this life looking forward to that heavenly city, looking forward to that heavenly body. How old will you be in that body, by the way? And how much will you weigh? You don't know and I don't know, all right? We just don't know. But we look forward to that day when all things will be made right. God is going to set things right. But again, you're here, and you have to face this life day by day, don't you? And so, again, verse 4, let me point it out again, you groan and you're burdened. But the great hope that Paul gives us in the last couple of verses of this passage, 4 and 5, is that we do not groan alone. We have a gracious, divine provision in this life who is the Holy Spirit. See in verse 5, God prepared us for this purpose and He gave us the Spirit as a pledge, or yours might say guarantee, or perhaps even down payment. The Holy Spirit is God's earnest payment to show us that there is more to come. He's given us Himself, He's given us His Spirit, that we might look forward to more. This is just the first installment of what we have to come. So in this life, though you are not yet at the resurrection, though you're not yet at the new earth, you have the Holy Spirit as God's guarantee that those things are coming. You have the Holy Spirit as the down payment from God that this is what is to come. And the Holy Spirit is very active in our lives if we allow Him to be. In Romans chapter 8, this is again that sister passage to 2 Corinthians 5. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 22, Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, 
but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You see all the parallels? We walk by faith, not by sight. We look at the things that are invisible, not the things which are visible. We have the Spirit of God who comes into our lives, who guides us into this life. He intercedes on our behalf, we learn in Romans 8. That means He prays for us. If you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit prays for you. He assures us. We also find that out in Romans 8. He, he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a promise. What a blessing. He brings about fruit. He bestows gifts in the church. He does all this while we wait. You're not there yet. You're here. But look at all these things you have. Look at, look at all that you have from God Himself, God the Spirit, given to you as a down payment. You're not left to your own devices. And this is God's program. God, God wrote it up this way. He's getting the most glory this way. And you are a privileged member of His program. I mean, what, what, what privilege you have as a child of God to be involved in God's program where He has chosen to set you apart and fill you with Himself and to, and to give you power in this life to be separate from the world, to live for Him, to be renewed in your thinking, to have that eternal perspective, the mind of Christ, which is yours, to lay hold of that here and now and to be a witness for Him, an ambassador for Him. And that's where Paul's going in this very chapter to be an ambassador for God. What a privilege. We have so many advantages in God's program. And God has a purpose in this, doesn't He? Look at verse 5 again. God is the one who prepared us for this very purpose. Don't despise this life. Don't despise your body. Don't despise the spiritual struggle. Just because there is a spiritual struggle, you should despise sin. But, but see God's hand in this. See God's purpose in this. How He is bringing you through this life, this life that isn't even worth being compared to what is to come. That you would glorify Him now and make much of His name now and for all eternity. As you are led by the Spirit in this life, you will continue to groan. You know that, right? Some, some of you, the Spirit led you this morning when you threw that leg over the side of the bed to make a pretty loud groan. <laughs> You will continue to groan, but you will not groan alone, and you will not groan without hope. You can continue through this life, through the struggles, to press on in hope, in faith, being led by the Spirit. Well, let's get into the future timeline here after this life. I'll read verses 6 through 10 as a whole, and then we'll go through and consider what this timeline looks like. Therefore, Paul says, verse 6, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul here is getting to the certainty of the Christian life after death. We will obtain the inheritance, Christians. We will be glorified with Christ. Okay, this will happen. This is a, a certainty. This isn't wishful thinking. You don't have to wonder about what happens on the other side of the grave. You don't have to be curious. You don't have to be scared. And perhaps that's what's most important. You don't have to be scared. You can rest assured in the promises of God that He's given you all that you need to know in this life about what is to come and that you do not need to fear. In fact, you can face death confidently. Leaving this world for the believer is a promotion. We, when we grieve 
after a believer dies, we're not grieving for that person. When a believer dies, that, that person has been promoted. That person is better off than we are. We're grieving for ourselves because we're left behind with the struggle. We're here, right? And so we grieve that sad state of affairs. But we don't grieve for that person. I wonder if you have this perspective this morning. John MacArthur in his commentary gave a great illustration. I want to share it with you. He said, Death comes like an utterly unsympathetic landlord waving an eviction notice. But that eviction merely releases believers from a wretched earthly neighborhood to an infinitely grand and glorious dwelling in a heavenly neighborhood. For the believer then, the sorrows, disappointments, and sufferings of this life are worse than death. Death releases believers from the relatively dilapidated slum in which they now live and ushers them into a room in the house of the eternal Father in the heavenly city. Good illustration, isn't it? Some of us feel the weight of that dilapidated slum more than others, but we should all feel it because God is bringing us to a much better place. So on the one hand, we don't want to waste life here with our head in the clouds just thinking about heaven and ignoring what's in front of us because God has you here. But on the other hand, all believers should long for the fullness of future redemption. That should be in the heart of every Christian. We should long for heaven. We should want to go to the next thing because the next thing unequivocally is better than here. In every single way, it's better than here. Well, before the realization of the full realization of our salvation with the resurrection, there's an intermediate state, which I've mentioned, and Paul talks about here in these verses that I just read. Again, it's called intermediate because it's not final. We will be resurrected and glorified later on. In uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it's a very simple little verse. Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. I love that verse. Okay? So we will be resurrected and we will live with Christ. But before that, before we are glorified with Him in our physical bodies through resurrection, there will be this intermediate state. And the great news is that every Christian is with the Lord immediately upon death. Every believer in Jesus Christ, everyone who has been saved, who has been born again, will be with Him immediately upon death. There's no suffering. There's no like working your way purgatory situation. There's none of that. Immediately upon death, your spirit goes to be with the Lord Jesus Let's look again at verses 6 through 8. Paul says he's of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. You see the dichotomy there? We walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. This future intermediate state does not include your body but it includes the Lord and His resurrected, glorified body. Jesus, of course, has already been resurrected. Hallelujah. We're thankful for that. And He didn't shed His earthly body here on earth before He ascended. He took that body with Him to heaven at the right hand of the glory of God. And so for the Christian, when you die, your spirit goes to be with the resurrected Lord Jesus immediately. What a glorious day that will be for each one of us. When we die, we are with Him with no break in between. And this is a real experience that we will have as we are disembodied yet with the resurrected Christ. We will be comforted by God. We will be in the comforting presence of God Himself who will care for us while we're there. And we will be at home. Did you notice that in verse 9? Paul says, this is home. On the one hand, he struggles because he doesn't want to be naked. He doesn't want to be without his body. He wants to go right into this resurrected state, to be translated, to be just changed in the twinkling of an eye when Jesus comes back. That's what he wants. But he knows that wherever the Lord Jesus is, that's home, isn't it? Wherever the Lord is, is home. And so we will feel like we're home. 
We're getting ready to go on a long trip this summer. And trips are fun, but long trips, you start feeling the need to be home. And you just want to be home. And for every person who has died in Christ, for those saints throughout the ages, they're home. We're not, but they are because they are with the glorious Lord Jesus. A couple more passages I want to show you about the intermediate state. This isn't the only place in the New Testament that talks about this. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24, Paul said this famous statement, "'For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain.'" Who can say that but a Christian? Verse 22, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the the desire to depart and be with Christ. See that vision there, to be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus? For that is very much better. (laughs) Not exactly great English, but gets the point across, right? Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul describes this as a departing. He's departing the world. He's departing his body to be with Christ. He's being absent from the body and being present with Jesus. And he says this is very much better. Another way you could say it is exceedingly better. So even though that state is not the final state, there's still more to come. It's way better than what we got going on right now. Because in the presence of the resurrected Lord Jesus, in the presence of heaven, there's no sin there. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no second law of thermodynamics. There's the Lord Jesus. And there's heavenly bliss for His glory. But another example of this in the New Testament is seen in a much different way. This is in Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 It says, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Well, that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? We've just jumped into the middle of tribulation, the great tribulation. We've jumped into the middle of the breaking of seals and hell being unleashed on the earth in many ways, but also God's wrath being unleashed on the face of the earth. What an amazing time that will be in the most fearful sense. It'll be an awesome day, not in the oh great way, but in the that will put fear into the heart of every man. And what we see here are saints who were killed because of their testimony. They were killed because they were Christians They are now in the presence of the Lord, they're calling out to the Lord, and they're observing what's going on on the earth. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That they're in heaven after being killed, yet they know what's going on in the face of the earth, and they're asking God, how much longer until you put an end to this? (laughs) And I love God's response. It's like a good father, a little longer, (laughs) just a little longer. There are other believers on the face of the earth who had to be added to the number of martyrs, he says. And so they have to wait a little while longer. But the whole point for our purposes here is that we have these disembodied people, they are still people just without their bodies, observing what's going on on the face of the earth before they're resurrected and their souls are joined back to their bodies. It's another look at what's going on in that intermediate state, okay? So a couple of fascinating passages there. We don't have a ton of detail about this intermediate state, but we do have enough to understand that this will be at home. This will be with the Lord Jesus. This will be a time where you can communicate back and forth directly 
to, with God, with no interference of sin, no interference of the flesh. What a glorious time that will be. The uh, language that Paul uses in our passage today when he talks about being absent and being at home, these Greek words have to do with being with uh, your people. The word for being home is for being with his people. And the word for being absent is being away from your people. I know that whenever I'm away from this church for more than a couple Sundays, I miss you people. (laughs) I want to be back with my people. I feel absent because I'm away from my people. You guys are my kind of people. I just am comfortable here. I like it here. And Paul is saying that this life is like, big picture here, we're away from home because we're away from the Lord. And when we're there, we're going to be with our capital P person. We're going to be with him. We will be home. Some of you, of course, in this room are from different countries. And some of you miss your people sometimes. And what a great feeling it is as you're reading this passage to connect with what Paul is trying to express. You're away from everything you've known. You're just out of place. And yet, one day, you'll be home, and all things will be made right. Well, this is what most people think of when they think of heaven, right? They think of the intermediate state. When most people think of heaven, they don't think of a new earth with resurrected bodies where we will all be together again, walking around with the Lord and exploring this new creation that He's going to make. But that is where this is all headed. And to get there, we have to be resurrected. So even though the intermediate state will be a great state, it'll be a great thing, you'll be with the Lord, it's still not as good as what comes after that. So the intermediate state is far more exceedingly better than now, and that new earth with resurrected bodies, that'll be even greater than being disembodied in heaven. So we have layers upon layers of these amazing events that we will experience. Recently, I had heard the story of Uh, an older saint who passed away uh, in his 90s. And when he was at the hospital, knowing that this was going to be the end for him, he, uh, I heard the report from his daughter where he, he had said to her, I'm going to miss you guys so much. And I think that's a great illustration for us to start to grasp the levels of experience that we're going to have here. How could that final resurrected state be better than being in heaven? Well, in heaven, there's this waiting going on, isn't there? We saw that in Revelation. How long, Lord? And when you go there, you're you're just not in the final state where all things are made whole and complete yet. And so even though it's far better than here, there will be one day when all believers will be reunited as the one family of God. We won't be missing anybody. We won't be waiting for the next thing. There won't be any longing or yearning whatsoever. All things will arrive and will be there. And that's what I want to talk about next, is the resurrection and the sequence of resurrections, because there's not just one. So are you ready for more? More detail now, okay? You ready? Buckled up? Ready to go? Well, let's turn to John 14. I want to show you the next thing in John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking to His disciples and explaining to them what comes next on God's calendar. There are are a lot of amazing things to see in John 14, but let's hone in on verse 3. John 14, 3, and I want you to put your place, uh, put yourself in the place of one of the disciples hearing this from Jesus and how this would shape your expectations. John 14, 3, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, in the verse before, in the sentence before, Jesus had just talked about going away to His Father's house. In His Father's house are many dwelling places. If you're using the King James, it says mansions, and that's okay. It's just not as accurate as dwelling places, okay? It's God's house, so the dwelling places are probably pretty nice. And He says He's going to prepare a place for the disciples in his father's house with all these dwelling places. And then the next thing he says, the verse I just read, is that if he goes and does this, he says, quote, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's talking here about a rapture. He's talking here about a catching up, a receiving his people to himself to go not to the earth, but to his father's house where the many dwelling places are. That's what's going to be taking place as Jesus describes it here. And so the next thing on the calendar as Jesus gives it to us and as we learn more about it in the New Testament is a catching up of the church. And what Jesus has done in this statement is set the expectation for every generation of the church to be looking for this. That the next thing that's going to happen is that Jesus is going to come back to receive us to himself that where he is, we may be also. We're longing for this time when he's going to come back and the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and we will go to the Father's house together. That will be an amazing time. And it's when our souls will be reunited with our bodies. It's when we will go from being naked in an intermediate state to being clothed once again with our bodies as we are resurrected at this rapture of the church. The dead in Christ rise first than those who are alive. I think Paul had this hope for himself, even in our passage that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians 5. Turn back there and look at 2 Corinthians 5 two. Notice how Paul phrases this when he says, in this house we groan, this earthly tent, we're groaning, and we're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So not only in the way this has been translated, because I think you can pick it up even in our English here, but also when you examine the Greek word that he uses for clothed here, we see that Paul had this idea that our heavenly dwelling would just be put right over what we have right now. The word that he uses for clothed is like, has like two different prefixes to it. It means to put on over. He expected and desired to get this heavenly body from God that would just be put right on over, that he would go right from this existence on Wednesday into the heavenly existence on Thursday. That was his expectation. And that's what will happen to those who are alive at the Lord's return. For those of us who are alive and remain, when Jesus comes back for that event we just looked at in John 14, when Jesus returns, those believers who are alive and remain will be changed in an instant. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You'll be translated or transferred totally instantly to your new heavenly body. For Paul, this was the ideal transition. He didn't want to have to die first and go to this intermediate state and be naked. And I think for all Christians, that is a great desire. Well, once there is a resurrection of those who have died in Christ, the program continues. The raptured, resurrected Christians will stand before Jesus in judgment after that. During this time, after Jesus comes back for His people and we are now in the Father's house, there's a judgment that's going to take place. And our passage today talks about this in verse 10. Look again at 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment for Christians. When he says all, he's talking about all believers here. Unbelievers will go to a different judgment. That's the great white throne judgment you can read about in Revelation chapter 20. But this judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, is a judgment for Christians. And notice what he says in verse 10. He says, all must appear. How, how exhaustive is this? All believers must appear. So you don't have the option of, you know, forgetting to put this on your calendar or your whatever, your schedule. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Christian. This is in your future because all must appear. And even that word appear that we see in verse 10, all must appear. That means to be made manifest. All must be manifested before the judgment seat of Christ. What's going to happen in that judgment? Well, Paul tells us that there's coming a day when all the motives of men's hearts will even be exposed. Those motives that we can't even figure out now, those motives that we can't even examine while we're here in this body of, of death, all will be laid bare before the Lord Jesus. And this is called the Bema seat judgment, or to be more accurate, the Bema 
seat judgment is how it could be pronounced. It comes from the Greek word bema, and it was the, the judgment seat that most larger cities had. Larger cities would have a place in a, uh, a portion of their city would have a bema seat on it where the, oh dear, oh, is that you, Joseph? As long as it wasn't God, I think we're okay. <laughs> no. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did I hear a trumpet? Uh, but we will all appear before this judgment seat that, and, and Paul's using the illustration from his day. Okay, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, the, the judgment seat, the bema seat. In Corinth, in fact, there was such a bema seat. And let's go ahead and pull up that picture now, the, the picture of the bema seat. This is the one that's in Corinth. It's actually one of the very few that still remains today. It would be a built-up platform where the governor, the leader, whatever you know, title he would have, could come and pronounce judgments in the city. They didn't do a lot of things discreetly in those cultures back then. Uh, if something was needing to be made known, they would come out into the marketplace or wherever they would place such a judgment seat, this platform, and they would declare the judgments. And so yeah, this was taken recently. This is in Corinth today, the very one they had whenever Paul was writing. It still remains, which is pretty cool. And it's not just to the Corinthians that Paul talked about such a thing. He talked about this in Romans chapter 14. In Romans 14.10, Paul said something very similar to those believers. He said, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the bema of God, the judgment seat. And there's that language again that all of us will stand before him. It's a judgment for all Christians that we will all face. Now, you can start getting a little nervous here, can't you? Thinking, that's not going to be very nice. Because the motives I do know about my heart are very good. <laughs> and uh, we could always, of course, be doing more for the Lord. And, and I thought we had assurance. What, what's up with that assurance? Let's go back and preach about that part again, right? We can just start getting a little squirmy here. So let me just try to give you some reassuring thoughts here, but I don't want to let you off the hook too much because this is something you need to think about, okay? I don't want you to pretend like these passages don't exist. All right, so let's reassure you. First of all, this is a judgment that has to do with your practice, not your position, okay? Easy, alliterative way to remember this. It has to do with your practice, not your position. What does that mean? Well, your position is your standing before God as saved or unsaved. It has to do with your uh, status, as a, either a child of God or a child of the devil like the rest of mankind. Someone who's been born again or someone who has not been born again. Someone who's in Christ or someone who's outside of Christ. This judgment does not touch on that at all. That's been done. You have been told in the Bible that if you are a Christian, you're secure all the way through to the end. You've been sealed until the day of redemption. God has set His loving, powerful hand on you, and no one can take you out of the Father's hand. It's a done deal. Ah, okay. What's all this practice stuff then? What are we being judged for? Well, it says in verse 10 of our passage that we will be judged for the deeds that have been carried out through the body, whether good or bad. What happens when you become a Christian... Uh, for our purposes here, I'll just tell you two things. Two things happen. One is you're given the guarantee of eternal salvation. You have absolute assurance of pardon of sin. But the other thing that happens is you become a steward for God. When you become a Christian, you now become a steward for God while on this earth to take your time, talents, treasures to the Lord and see how He would use you. And this life becomes a life for Jesus Christ. You are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 says. And so your life now is to reflect this in your stewardship of all that God has given you. And so in this judgment, we're not talking about heaven and hell. That's not on the line. That's done. But in this judgment, we're talking about what's going to happen in the future with your rewards. The Bible talks about rewards in the New Testament. We learn about crowns. There's the crown of life. There's the crown of righteousness. We have different crowns that are discussed in the New Testament. And we know that in Jesus' future kingdom, we know that in the new earth, there will even be different functions that we have as God's people. There will still be kings and princes in these future eras. And so perhaps some of that 
all connects. God doesn't give us a great outline or a user's manual on any of this. He just tells us what's going to happen, and you know we have to connect some of the dots on our own here. But we know that hell is not on the line for you, but your future experience with God in His future uh, kingdoms, that is what's going on. That the rewards in your future experience in the kingdom is what's on the line. Your salvation is not in jeopardy at all. But that communicates something to us. That our hope of heaven, our assurance of salvation, does not negate our responsibility while on this earth, does it? Some people will try to say that's what Christianity is, you know. There will be people who will say, well, yeah, Christians, your gospel is just, you get saved and do whatever you want. You read 2 Corinthians 5.10? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, they will all be exposed and they will be judged by Jesus Himself face to face. That all of a sudden does put some more weight on the decisions that we make in this life, doesn't it? It should. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3 that also talks about this judgment. The book right before this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we went over this a couple of years ago when we were going through this book. Paul talked about this judgment then. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 10, he said to these same people, this same church, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, this is that judgment day, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. There's that reward language. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I think that passage does maybe the best job for us in summarizing what this judgment is all about. Not about salvation uh, at all. This man whose work was burned up, he will be saved even though it's as by fire. Yet the judgment will be with the deeds done in the body, and there will be rewards on the line. So our hope of heaven doesn't negate our responsibility on earth, and therefore our ultimate ambition must be to serve God. Our ultimate ambition must be to be pleasing to God in all that we have, in all of our stewardship, whether we're talking about an old beat-up car that you can keep going, or we're talking about the most precious relationships that we have in this life. Whatever God has given you to steward, your ultimate desire must be to be pleasing to Him. And that's verse 9. Paul says, this is his ambition. He makes this our ambition, it says, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Because He knows this day of judgment is coming. And He doesn't want to be found there with a bunch of stuff burning up and being consumed. Paul wants, as much as it depends on Him, for His labor to last, His labor to be counted by God, by Jesus Christ Himself, as precious stones, as gold. That's what he desires. That should be in the heart of every Christian. That whatever you're doing in this life, that it would be your great desire for Jesus Christ, your Savior, to say at the judgment that that lasts because it was done the right way, with the right motive, with the right heart. It was done from faith. This judgment is not about quantity. It's not about how much you can do for God, how much you can bring to that judgment for Him to look over. But this judgment is about quality. And so I am sure, as I'm sure you are sure, that there will be saints in that day who on this earth during this life were looked down upon. It was thought they're not doing much for the kingdom. They could be doing more. Well, Jesus will reveal this, and it could very well be that they were better stewards than you. It could very well be that with what little they had, they did it all from faith. And they did it with the right motive, a desire to please God with whatever He had given them, whether it was very, very little or much. And that's what matters. 
is that whatever we have, we give it to God and we say, it's yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Well, after these judgments that take place, or the judgment for Christians, the Bema Seat judgment, after this, we will return with Him in glory. You read along in the Bible, you see that Jesus comes back with His saints. That will be those who have gone through that judgment. There will be, of course, the millennium, that kingdom where Jesus reigns explicitly on the face of the earth. There will be the new earth that we'll go into from there. And that will be the final state. For Christians, that's our final destination, is living eternally in a new earth with each other, with God. And we will be absolutely clothed in heavenly glory. We will not be found naked. Now, all that to say, we must go through the process of shedding this earthly body one way or another, right? (laughs) And you're still here. Going back to the start of the sermon, here you are, you're still here. We have to go through the process, but you do not need to fear. You do not need to fear what comes next, whether you are alive and remain or whether you die and are resurrected, whether you will face death or you'll be raptured, whether you will have this intermediate state experience in heaven or you will immediately go into the resurrected state. It doesn't matter. You don't need to fear. And no one knows. There might be people who claim to know sometimes that they know when Jesus is coming back. They don't know. Okay? No one knows. Paul himself didn't know. He says back in chapter 4, he knows that he will be raised with Christ. Well, what does that imply? Death. And then he goes in chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, well, if we die, if the earthly tent is destroyed. Well, what do you mean if? You just said you're going to be resurrected. Well, he's going back and forth just in a matter of verses. And that's how we've all been in the church for a couple thousand years now. No one knows the day or the hour, but we keep looking forward to that day. So let me finish with a few thoughts here just to properly, hopefully, motivate us as we continue in this life that we have now. Again, Paul's motivation in verse 9 was to be pleasing to the Lord in all that he did, whether at home or absent. And so the big idea here, while you wait, get to work. While you wait for the Lord and while you wait to see what God has for you, whether it's death or whether it's being caught up in an instant, No matter what it is, until that day, get to work. Not for your salvation, but from your salvation. As a response to your salvation. To glorify God in your body with all the things that you do in this life. Because your eternal life has begun, Christian. Some people forget this. They think it's when we die, that's when eternal life begins. No, no. Eternal life has begun now. You've got the power of God in you now. And so we seek to use this life in whatever way that God would have us to use it for His glory. We want to please our Creator with the decisions we make now. It affects your schedule. It affects your bank account. It affects your relationships. It affects all your commitments. It affects just the way you watch the news, you read about the news. It affects everything. You want to please God with the decisions that you make now thinking of this future judgment that will be based on what we do now. Robert Gramacki, in his commentary, said this, "...the faithful servant will not be afraid of that day, but the slothful servant will worry that he will finally be found out." Accountability is a necessary motivation in any vocation. It is more so in matters that pertain to God and the souls of men. There is certainly a degree to which we can be motivated by the reality that we will face our Savior in judgment. Now, this is a difficult balance because you do not want your life to be fear all the time. Perfect love casts out fear, doesn't it? And so you don't live your life afraid of Jesus. That's the last thing I want you to walk away with today. But at the same time, know that it's been revealed to us that we will give an account to Jesus for what we've done in the body, things good or things bad. This Judgment will test the quality of our works, and so we can start now by examining our own motives. That would be a great application point for you to take away today, is to examine your motives. Whether you feel like you're doing a lot, whether you feel like you're doing a little, don't start with quantity, start with quality. Examine your motives. Are you truly seeking to live for God with your whole life, or do you have part of your life you're holding back from Him? 
Ask God to convict you. There's another application point. Ask God to convict you of areas where you need to have your motives changed. And you need to have your heart reoriented with the gospel. We need to seek to be consumed with thoughts about how to please God, to make it our constant, earnest mission in this life to please God, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're in the frustrating car ride in between, whether we're at the frustrating state there when we get there, whatever it is. We need to constantly be consumed with this motive to please God with all that we have. In Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10, Paul wrote, "'You were formerly darkness,' But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And look at this commission in verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Day by day, that could be your mission. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And everyone's context is going to be different on that. But you can pray to the same God that we all have and ask Him to guide you in this. So give the Lord all you've got in this life. There's that expression in sports and basketball, leave it all on the court, or leave it all on the field. Leave it all to God. Give Him all that you've got. Ask Him to use you mightily, whether you live until His return or not. Paul says in our text, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. That has to be our mission in this life, to give Him everything. And I want to close by reading from the fifth chapter of James. This is James 5, 7 through 11. He wrote, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until, he, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So remember these things, that the Lord is compassionate, He's merciful. He's also right at the door. And so be patient. Do not grumble. Do not complain. Give God all you got. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your admonition in Scripture, your encouragement, your wake-up calls that you give us just in the text that you've preserved. Help us to have the heavenly vision to walk forward, rightly ordering this life in good stewardship out of faith for your glory. We ask for your help in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.